0: The suggestion there is that God is not good and he does not want us to have the very best things in life. And the implication is that the word of God fences off the things we truly want in life. They are there for us, but God's word holds us back From them, and therefore we have to defy the Word of God. We have to transgress the law of God in order to take hold of the things that will make us feel the best, the things that we want the most. And so God is teaching here through this name, Isaac. He is reminding Sarah and Abraham and now us that actually God is good. Actually, God is kind and generous and trustworthy. And in fact, it is only when we obey his word and trust in his promises that we receive the things we want most in this life. The good things. The really, really happy things. The joy things. Joy is given to those who believe and who trust, and who wait upon the word and promise of the Lord. That is the point of the name. And you could stretch that out and argue that that is the point of the story.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Joy is given to those who believe and who trust and who wait upon the word and the promise of the Lord. That is one of the major themes of the Bible, and it's the theme occupying center stage in the story that we're looking at today. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your
0: word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 21. This is a very important chapter, so we'll get right into it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says about verse one, note, no word of God shall fall to the ground for he is faithful that has promised and God's faithfulness is the stay and support of his people's faith. He goes on to say about verse two, God is always punctual to his time. Though his promised mercies come not at the time we set, they will certainly come at the time he sets. And that is the best time. (laughs) Sometimes you can't beat Matthew Henry. And here he is right on. The, The Bible is at great pains to show us that we can, in fact, trust in the word of the Lord. God is wooing back a people who were lost And they were lost because they believed the lie that God's word could not be trusted. And so he is showing here that he is faithful. He is here rebuilding the faith of his people, and he is reminding them that they need to trust in his timing. He sees the whole board. They see only a tiny little part. If they just trust him. If they just press through a little doubt and a little delay, the Lord will surely bless them and give to them more than they could ever ask for, hope for, or imagine. Thanks be to God. Verse three says, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now names are important in the Bible. I'm sure you've been told that before particularly the names that are given by God. When God tells you to name your child something, it isn't because he found that name at the top of a trending list on the internet. God chooses names so as to communicate important truths and ideas. And the name Isaac means laughter, and it intends to communicate two very important things. First of all, it means that God can do the impossible. Remember, Sarah laughed because it was impossible Well, what is impossible for man is possible for God. To believe in God means to believe in miracles. It means to believe in things that cannot be quantified or explained in merely physical and material terms. If God is there, then impossible things will happen when it serves his will and purpose. Thanks be to God. Secondly, the name means that God brings his people joy. Remember, the original temptation began with the suggestion that God was not good and that happiness could not be achieved by trusting in the word of the Lord. Remember what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The devil is trying to put the idea into the woman's head that God is a withholding God. In point of fact, if you remember, God had said they could eat from any tree in the garden except one. Well, here the devil makes it sound as if God hadn't provided anything good at all. And then he goes on to suggest that God has held back the best things for himself. He says to the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The suggestion there is that God is not good and he does not want us to have the very best things in life. And the implication is that the word of God fences off the things we truly want in life. They are there for us, but God's word Holds us back from them, and therefore we have to defy the Word of God, we have to transgress the law of God in order to take hold of the things that will make us feel the best, the things that we want the most. And so, God is teaching here through this name, Isaac. He is reminding Sarah and Abraham, and now us, that actually. God is good. Actually, God is kind and generous and trustworthy. And in fact, it is only when we obey his word and trust in his promises that we receive the things we want most in this life. The good things. The really, really happy things. The joy things. Joy is given to those who believe and who trust and who wait upon the word and promise of the Lord. That is the point of the name. And you could stretch that out and argue that that is the point of the story. We jump back into the text at verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight years old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Here we see the family of faith characterized by prompt obedience and joyful praise. It is a good moment. Verse 8 says, And the child grew, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. On account of his son. So the good moment gives way to further conflict, as is often the case. And from this, we learn an important lesson. The reception of grace does not erase the consequences of prior disobedience. Abraham's failures are still having an effect inside the family of faith. That's important for us to see. There is a difference between the removal of guilt and the removal of consequence. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul goes on from that to say, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So it's a great thing when when God washes away the guilt and stain of our sin and considers us righteous by grace through faith. That's a marvelous thing. But it does not necessarily mean that we won't have to wrestle with consequences for the decisions we made either before or after we came to Christ. If you come to Christ in prison, you'll still have to finish your sentence. If you come to Christ with financial debt, you'll still have to pay that off. Forgiveness is not the eradication of earthly consequence. Abraham has received grace in great measure here in this chapter, but he still must deal with the consequences of a decision that he made in a moment of weakness.
1: Pastor Paul, you said something there I'd love to unpack a little further. You said, forgiveness is not the eradication of earthly consequence. What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Well, first of all, I don't mean in any way to diminish the beauty or the glory of what the Bible means when it talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is amazing. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103, verse 12. The blood of Jesus Christ cancels the record of our debt with its legal demands. Colossians 2.14 says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that we won't have to wrestle with consequences. If you commit adultery, your wife may forgive you, but that decision will, Will create a more or less permanent echo in your marriage moving forward. Trust will be harder to come by. Intimacy will be harder to achieve. That is a relational consequence. And there may be legal consequences for some of the decisions we make as well. If you get drunk and drive your car and run over a young mom and her child, God can forgive you. The blood of Christ is stronger than even the most heinous sins. But You will still lose your license, and you will probably go to jail. That's what happens in a moral society and in a moral universe, irrespective of our standing before God.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a hard truth. I'm not sure that's my favorite takeaway from this chapter, but I get it. I think it's a warning that we all need to hear. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 12.
0: The story continues in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. "'Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, "'for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. "'And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, "'because he is your offspring.' "'So Abram, Abraham rose early in the morning "'and took bread and a skin of water "'and gave it to Hagar, "'putting it on her shoulder along with the child, "'and sent her away. "'And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. "'When the water of the skin was gone,' She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him up fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Once again, we see the mercy and kindness of God. Even though Ishmael is not the child of promise, he will still be blessed because of his relationship to Abraham. That is the immediate and obvious meaning of this part of the passage. But the New Testament supplies another meaning. In Galatians 4 21 31, the Apostle Paul picks up this story and treats it as an illustration of a fundamental principle of incompatibility between the children of the slave woman and the children of promise. He sees this story as literally true, but also as illustrating a recurring theme in the history of redemption. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but let's just pause here. Sometimes evangelicals have overreacted to the excessive allegorization that went on among some of the church fathers and certainly went on in the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church. And it is right to reject excessive allegorization. But it's wrong to reject allegory when it is presented to us clearly in the text. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul treats this story as having an allegorical meaning. He says that. He uses the word. And so I think we have to be careful here. Uh, And I think we should notice that it's possible for a text to be literally true and to have an allegorical meaning. So I don't want to go back to the Middle Ages and see allegorical meanings in every text but where it's clear that we ought to I think we should not at the expense of the literal but in addition to the literal now listen listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4 29-31 he says but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so he's talking there about Ishmael uh, mocking Isaac so also it is now But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Galatians 4, 29 to 31. And the passage goes on. But Paul is saying there that the children of the flesh, the children of the world are always going to persecute the children of promise. There will be perpetual tension between the children of the serpent and the children of the seed. The two will never mix. The two never can mix. There is a fundamental antagonism there that is way bigger than individual personality or circumstance. It is elemental. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus wanted his people to understand this fundamental tension. The Apostle Paul wanted his people to understand that fundamental tension. But for whatever reason, it is very hard to get God's people to understand this reality. We want to be liked. We expect to be liked. We think we can be liked and we think there's a way for us to be attractive. But we don't understand that fundamentally, if Christ is in us, then the people of the world will despise us. The people of God will hear in us the voice of God and join us out of the world. But those who truly belong to the world will reject us and persecute us. It has been that way since Genesis chapter 4 and we see that again in Genesis chapter 21. Verse 22 goes on to say, At that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now here we notice again how eager Abimelech is to be rightly related to the person of Abraham. Abraham here is functioning as a vehicle of blessing. When Abimelech is rightly related to Abraham, he is blessed. Whereas when he is wrongly related, As we saw in the last chapter, he is cursed. So as a wise man, Abimelech wants to be rightly related. Verse 25 carries on that story. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Here, Abraham shows Abimelech by what means their ruptured relationship can be restored. Some of Abimelech's servants stole a piece of Abraham's property. Abraham knows that he's the vessel of blessing, and so he wants to help Abimelech atone for the misdeed. Abraham remembers what God did to Abimelech and his household the last time Abimelech unknowingly threatened the seed, so he helps him make things right. He helps him get back into a right posture towards himself. There's an obvious lesson here. The job of the covenant community is to teach people how to be rightly related to the child of promise and the principle of blessing. Abraham did that. And we need to do that. Peter did that in the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church. On the day of Pentecost, he told his neighbors, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Abraham told his neighbor how to deal with his sins and how to position himself for blessing. Peter told his neighbors how to do the same thing. My friends, that is the job. That is the calling and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. Pastor Paul, you said a couple of things there I want to follow up on, in part because I'm not really sure how they go together. On one hand, you referred to the Apostle Paul's use of this story in Galatians 4 as sort of a type or pattern demonstrating the perpetual tension between the children of the serpent and the children of the seed. But then on the other hand, you said that our job as members of the covenant community is to show our neighbors how to deal with their sins and how to position themselves for divine blessings in Christ. But how do we do that? How do we reach out to the people that are naturally inclined to reject us? Well that's a great question. And bad things happen to Christians
0: when they don't ask that question. If we assume that our friends and neighbors will find the Christian message essentially attractive Then when they don't, we may end up thinking that if we could just shave a little bit here or mute a little bit there, we could solve that problem. And that's how we got seeker-sensitive church in the 80s and 90s, and that's how we get gospel confusion all throughout the evangelical church today because we've started believing the watered-down gospel that we've been preaching to our friends. But the biblical starting place is to assume the antagonism of unsaved people toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is foreign and offensive to the unsaved person. That's why Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3, verse 3. Jesus seems to be saying there that you you have to be converted. You have to be born again before you can see and understand the message of the kingdom. The apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved It is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. So the natural man or the natural woman is going to find the gospel offensive. And if you think about it, that makes sense. The gospel begins with the rather abrasive news that you as an individual are not the center of the universe. The gospel begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you are not the center. You are not the arbiter of good and evil. You are a creature and you are subject to the authority of an infinitely higher other. That's the opening note of the biblical gospel, and the natural person finds that offensive, and it gets worse before it gets better. The biblical gospel says that not only are you not the sinner, not only are you not God, you are fallen. You are a sinner. You have failed and fallen short of the glory of God, and you need a savior. You need someone to do for you what you could never do for yourself, and you need someone to pay the debt that you have accumulated before God. That's the gospel. That's the bad news that sets up the good news. The good news is that Jesus has done all that. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he paid for the debt that we have accumulated that we could never pay. But as Jesus and Paul said, the Spirit has to be at work in a human heart to prepare them to receive a message that starts off the way our message starts off. So all authentically biblical mission and evangelism will begin with desperate prayer. We have to pray for the spirit to go before us and to prepare the soil of human hearts for this otherworldly gospel message. Only the spirit can overcome the natural hostility of the unsaved person toward the message of the kingdom of God. So we don't need to shave. We don't need to hide, mute, or obscure our message in any way We just need to pray and then scatter our seeds, attend to our fields, and leave the matter of harvest
1: up to God. Amen. Well said, and I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at intotheword.ca. You can also download our Into the Word app wherever you find your apps and connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet.